an exciting time of year this is. Everybody prays. Or so said my favorite history professor, Dr. Timothy George, who has been the head of the Beeson Divinity School now for many, many years. But back when he first said that, it really struck me. I later then read these words from him as he's a popular author, and he wrote this foreword to a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Prayer. Listen to what Dr. George writes. Everybody prays. Prayers can be chanted or moaned or sung or whispered, shouted, or simply offered in complete silence. Prayers are offered in beautiful churches, in lonely hospital rooms, football stadiums, in the halls of the U.S. Congress, on busy freeways, and in speeding airplanes racing across the sky. Even atheists pray in foxholes, so the saying goes. And I believe Dr. George is absolutely right. In one form or another, everyone prays. But listen to me, not all prayers are created equal. And today, I want us to look together at what I would say is perhaps the most supreme, ultimate example of prayer of all time. That prayer offered by our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, just a quick word about the back of your bulletin. You'll see a place for some notes there. And there's going to be two lessons right toward the end of this sermon that are takeaways. But I don't want you to be waiting with bated breath for those the entire sermon. Those are going to come right at the end. But what we're going to do together, if you have your Bible open on your lap or perhaps your portable device queued there, we're going to walk through this amazing passage together. And I'm literally... Because the scripture itself is more important than anything I could ever add to it or say about it. I literally want to walk through this passage pretty much verse by verse and then just kind of reflect a little bit with you. And let's see what we can learn together from the Gethsemane school of prayer as I'm calling it today. Jesus had bonded with his disciples in the upper room. But after they left that upper room experience, after sharing that meal together, he then made his way to a place called the Mount of Olives. And as we look at this section, I want us to learn some lessons here that can help us be more effective in our own prayer life. So let's jump in. First, I want you to see something about the place that he prayed Verse 36 of Matthew's gospel, chapter 26. When Jesus went with his disciples, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Now, this garden of Gethsemane was located at the Mount of Olives. And scripture in all four gospels lets us know that this was a frequent place that Jesus went to to be alone with his father. Luke 29, 22, verse 39 actually gives us some additional insight to that. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Notice that phrase, as usual. It was his custom. It was his habit. And all of them knew that. 
I would imagine that Judas Iscariot, when he was leading the enemies of Christ to find him so he would betray Jesus, I imagine he first took them to the upper room. And when he saw that, oh no, they've already gone from here, I think Judas knew immediately where they were. He said, I bet I know where they are. And he led these soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you have a place where you pray frequently? Prayer throughout the ages, from all the great women and men of prayer, they've all had the same testimony. While it is true, you can pray anywhere. Most effective warriors in prayer have had a place, a place that was special, a war room, if you will, a place where they could be alone with the Father and do business in prayer. I hope you have a place. So much of my praying goes on either in a little room in our house where I go to be alone or many times early in the morning at my office. And it's in that place that I feel a special connection with God. Verse 36 reads, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, along with him. Now, their names are James and John, although it doesn't give them right here. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And I'm intrigued by this next phrase, verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Now, catch that. Think about that. Jesus wanted his closest friends nearby, but then he also wanted to be totally alone, private. He wanted this to be just face-to-face interaction with the Father. Group prayer is a powerful thing. I love it when we pray as a congregation together. I love it when small groups get together and pray in their group. I love it when various staff teams spend some time praying together. And by the way, that's a commitment that many of your church staff have made. They come together on a very regular basis and pray together. But I want to tell you something. When you're alone, I think that's when you can be the most authentic. Would you agree? You don't worry about your grammar. You don't worry if you got your these and thous correct or all the punctuation marks in the right place. You don't even have to worry so much if your theology is just pristine, spot on, pure. You just say it and you know that your loving father can sort it out. You pour your soul out to him. Jesus said, go to your father in secret. Go to your prayer closet. Close the door. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You see, Jesus knew what was about to happen. And sometimes that dreaded anticipation of an event can be the worst of all. If you know the IRS agent is showing up tomorrow, whoo, you can sweat bullets. If you know there's a tough conversation that needs to happen 
one day this week, oh, that can keep you awake at night. It can put extra stress on. If you know you have a surgery coming up in a day or two, often people feel the added pressure of that, and it's harder. Jesus knew exactly what he was about to face. The Romans did crucifixions publicly. Often, the crosses were literally lined up along the major roads and the freeways, if you will, of that day. And so, every Jewish person had seen a crucifixion up close. But I think what agonized Jesus the most was the fact that the sins of the world would be laid on him. That alienation, that sense of loneliness, the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders, Jesus had never experienced that before. And Jesus collapsed, as it were, beneath the pressure of all of that. It's interesting to me that in John 18, it's description of the upper room and what happened afterward. It says that Jesus left the upper room for Gethsemane and he went over the brook Kidron. Now the brook Kidron is like a drainage ditch from the temple. Now remember, this was Passover and the blood of all those literally thousands of sacrificial animals that were being slain during this Passover season, that blood was draining the brook Kidron as it flowed to the Jordan River. And I find it poignant to think about. I find it moving to realize that as Jesus went over the brook Kidron and saw that blood flowing, he knew, he knew that in a matter of hours, his blood would flow. The Lamb of God who had come to be slain for the sins of the world. The word Gethsemane, by the way, means oil press. This was a place where olives were squeezed. They were pressed for the oil. And Jesus was feeling the squeeze from Satan's pressure. Again, in Luke's gospel, we get a little extra insight. Chapter 22. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, what is that about? The New International Bible, the study Bible, adds this note. This could mean perspiration in large drops like blood or possibly hematidrosis, the actual mingling of blood and sweat as in cases of extreme anguish and strain. What intensity. He's literally sweating drops of blood. I've had some pretty intense moments, but I've never experienced that. Have you? I've been on an airplane before. I'll never forget this ride. And somehow on this small craft in the night, we flew right into the most intense lightning storm I've ever seen. I mean, it was unbelievable. It's like you could reach out and touch the lightning. And I thought, we're gone. We're dead. I was literally saying, Lord, I'm, I'm coming to meet you. I, this, this, we cannot get through this. I've never seen anything like it. And I remember literally as I prayed and the plane was being jostled, breaking out in a sweat during that moment. 
I've faced decisions here. We faced decisions as a church where I felt the pressure and the responsibility of making a wise decision and I prayed with extra intensity. I have felt grief over someone who was going through a struggle or a marriage that was about to break up and I've prayed intensely for that couple but I've never, ever experienced anything like this. You see, folks, where there's pressure on us, our prayers get more intense. And the Mount of Olives was a consummate example of that. And if you're going through a hard time today, I just want to add this. I hope you find some consolation, some comfort, and perhaps at least a bit of encouragement from knowing that Jesus Christ is actually still interceding for you if you're his child. Hebrews 7.25 says, he always lives to make intercession for us. And you know what? I believe you're on his prayer list. He sees that burden. He knows what you're going through. And he feels the weight of the pressure that you feel. But then I want you to notice something about the nature of what seems to be his attitude in prayer here. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. Is that the way we should always pray, with our face on the ground? Well, if you're new to scripture, I don't know if this will surprise you, but the Bible actually doesn't prescribe that. It doesn't tell us what posture we're supposed to always take. What we see, rather, is that God's people had different postures. Sometimes they might pray kneeling down, other times standing up. Often they would pray with their hands raised, like this, in prayer. And that's one of the very appropriate postures to have when we pray. Sometimes we see people praying, maybe lying on a bed or whatever. I'll never forget a story from Billy Graham's early days he went to visit the popular Baptist pastor, W.A. Criswell. And this was before anybody knew who Billy Graham was. He was just an aspiring evangelist. And he said to Dr. Criswell, I just feel the call of the Lord in my heart to be an evangelist. And they talked a little bit about that. And Criswell said, well, why don't we pray about it? And so Criswell said, I closed my eyes and I voiced a prayer. And in a few minutes when I opened my eyes, I was shocked to see this young man, Billy Graham, lying face down on the carpet with his face right in the carpet. And he said, I made a mental note. God's going to do something special with this young man. There's a humility. There's an authenticity in him and in his very posture in prayer that I think God is going to honor. Verse 39 reads, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I'm amazed, actually, that Jesus just told his desires to God. Is that surprising to you at all? I find a lot of Christians want to hold back. I'll bet a number of you, you would never just say to God, this is what I want, because it might to you sound selfish. I hope this would free us up a bit. God wants us to voice our desires. He's designed prayer that way. Even though he knows our hearts, he's designed prayer in such a way that we would actually voice those to him. He wants us to ask. 
But then I'm struck by how Jesus humbly submitted his desires to the Father's direction. And that's the ultimate in prayer. That our desires, our will would sync up with the Father's desires and his will for us. So you're praying about a job. And you say, Lord, I think this job would be great. I really want it. Don't be afraid to tell God that. I think it fits my gifts really well. I love what they're going to pay. I believe this would be a great stewardship of my life. But be sure in your heart, like Jesus here, you always say, Lord, but I want what's good for your kingdom and your glory above anything for me. That's the ultimate. All a man's ways seem innocent in his own eyes, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Proverbs 16, 2. God's looking at our heart, and when we want his glory above all else, trust me, he is pleased. <laughs> Sometimes we pray for stupid things, don't we? I do. Woo! I've prayed so many prayers that I'm so glad God didn't answer. I, look, I love Garth Brooks' old country song, Thank God for unanswered prayer. You know that song where apparently he's going back to a high school reunion after many years of not seeing his classmates and apparently he sees a, a woman that he dated and he'd actually wanted to marry her and apparently she wasn't aging that well. <laughs> and he says, thank God for unanswered prayer. Have you ever been there? I've prayed so many things that I'm so thankful God loved me too much to answer that prayer the way I ask it. So many things. And that's why when we pray, we need to say, God, your will is the thing I want most of all. And that's one of the amazing things we can take away from Jesus' prayer here. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for an hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now, these disciples were under emotional pressure too. They sensed that there was some sort of conspiracy going on to kind of catch Christ saying something wrong. They had been there when he had had these encounters with religious leaders. And now it's late in the evening. They had just eaten a big meal. It might have even been one or two in the morning at this point. I mean, I'm empathetic with these guys. Hey, have you ever tried to pray, really tried, but you were just so tired you just conked out? I've done that so many times. Literally down on my knees and literally fall asleep. Anybody done that? Yeah, yeah, okay, I see some hands now. Okay, thank you for encouraging me that I'm not the only wretch in the room here. I have literally fallen asleep, and I'm also empathetic because I know that, you know what, I've seen so many weird things in church, can I tell you? I I, I, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but when we were in a previous building years ago, we actually had a guy start snoring in the middle of a sermon, all right? Really, started snoring. Somebody had to kind of jostle him and wake him up. Uh, we've had people who kind of fell asleep and their head hit the chair in front of them and they woke up. 
I heard about one guy, one husband who fell asleep during the service, right in the middle of the sermon. And his wife kind of elbowed him and woke him up, and he was so startled, he stood up and began to pray the benediction right there, (laughs) right in the middle of the sermon. Weird things happen in church. But we all can identify with this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body is weak. And sometimes we really want to persevere in prayer, but in our humanity, we're so weary. By the way, a tangible byproduct of prayer should be more patience with people. If you find yourself being kind of crotchety and edgy with people, it may be an indication that you need to spend some time with the Lord and be energized by his spirit. Because the fruit of the spirit is patience. And I'm finding myself these days, I, I just letting you know my life, I'm, I'm ashamed that I haven't been more faithful in prayer in past years, but I'm finding myself these days literally praying more than I've ever prayed before. You say, why, Pastor, are you becoming a spiritual giant? Oh, not a chance. It's desperation. I'm praying more than I've ever prayed because when I look at the onslaught of the world and the flesh and the devil, when I look at the intensity of the battle we're in and how high the stakes are, when I think about all the opportunities that God, wonderful opportunities that God has put before us as a church, and I think about how piddly some of our efforts are, I in desperation say, God, if you don't do this, nothing's going to happen. Amen? I'm praying more than I've ever prayed. And I would urge you to join me in that. Let's make a commitment to learn from Jesus in the school of Gethsemane. Let's learn to be more effective prayer warriors than we've ever been. And then I want you to notice something else about Jesus' prayer here, verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, wait a minute. That's almost an exact repetition of his previous words. I thought the Bible said we were supposed to avoid vain repetitions. Well, it does say that. And I think what that means is there's no particular value in just reciting a prayer by rote if you're not even thinking about the words and maybe you don't even have a clue what they really mean. It's not like some magic mantra or something. That's what the Bible says. There's no value in that. But please be careful you don't jump to the conclusion there's no value in repeating a prayer. Oh, yes, there is. In fact, Jesus said, you keep on asking. You keep on seeking. You keep on knocking. Those verbs are present action, continuous action in the present. You keep on doing it. He used an importunate widow as an example of a pillar of prayer, someone who was wise in her perseverance as she continued to go to the judge for justice. Jesus said, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When he came back, he he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. 
So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, get this, saying the same thing. So let's learn from Jesus. It's awesome to keep praying about the same thing. As you keep pressing into that, as you keep persevering with that, it will underscore in your own heart and mind how intense this desire is, and it will cultivate in our hearts the ability to receive what God is going to give. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I think something had happened profoundly during those three hours or so of prayer. Jesus had gone into the garden sorrowful. He came out, I believe, glowing with a determination to set his face like a flint to the cross. He came out confident. He's very assured. I believe God has strengthened him through this prayer. Luke 22 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Think of that. A messenger sent from the Father. I wonder what they talked about. Did they just sit for a while? Did the angel put an arm about his shoulder? Luke says an angel came and strengthened him. Did the angel pray with him? Maybe the angel had a towel and wiped his sweating brow. Or maybe he just brought a message straight from the father's heart. I just, father wanted to encourage you. We're not told, are we? But when Jesus got up from that place of prayer, he was different. He had a resolve and an assurance that he was ready to go to the cross. Now, friends, as you pray, I want you to know that God always answers prayer. Some of your heads are spinning right now from that statement. Let me explain. God always answers prayer. Now, let me explain that. Preachers and teachers for centuries have given the message I'm about to give you. Here it is. There's four possible answers. If your request is just wrong, it's inappropriate. If we had time, I could give you biblical examples of that. God will say no. If the timing is wrong, it's not that the request is wrong. It's just that this is not the right timing yet. God will say slow. That's the second possible answer. If you are wrong, God will say, grow. In other words, if you need to do some changing, if some mental furniture needs to be moved around, <coughs> if you need kind of a checkup from the neck up, if you need some adjustments in your own spiritual growth, God may say, we need to do some growing here before I address this. But if the request is right, the timing is right, and you are right, God will say go. But God always answers prayer with one of those varieties of response. And Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. His will, his desires merged with the Father during that time. He got up from prayer. He said to his disciples, the time is here. Let's go. 
And let's trace quickly just some of his steps that follow this right after this time of prayer. This was such a hectic season when he was arrested here. Verse 47 reads, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. It's estimated that there might have been maybe 60 soldiers here with swords and clubs coming to arrest Jesus. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. They tried to arrest Jesus on other occasions, but he had sort of slipped through the cracks, but not this time. They were going to arrest him at night apart from the crowd. And that's why Judas was so valuable to the enemies of Christ. Jesus knew where he was at night and he could identify him quickly in a crowd. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Have you ever been stabbed in the back like that? Maybe by a relative, an ex-spouse, a co-worker at the office, a fellow student, someone you used to call friend, Boy, it hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> you live very long in this world, you're probably going to experience some sort of betrayal. But when someone, let get this now, when someone you've poured your life into for years betrays you, I mean, that really, really stings. But I want you to notice here, there's not even a hint of retaliation. Jesus had just spent three hours with the Father, and this marvelous response he gives here is evidence of the transforming power of prayer. Jesus replied, friend, friend, do what you came for. What incredible composure Jesus displayed in the wake of the ultimate betrayal. I would have wanted to punch his lights out. Jesus showed him grace. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, you know from the other gospels, from John particularly, that this person was Simon Peter. Impulsive, inconsistent, sanguine uh, personality, quick to act, and Simon Peter has a concealed weapon. He's carrying heat, man, and he pulls it out, and he's going to whack this guy's head off. The guy probably moved a little bit, and instead he just sliced off his ear. He was a lousy swordsman, frankly. <laughs> Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. By the way, that's where that saying came from. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Now, one thing that's always puzzled me is why didn't these soldiers just step in immediately and just take charge of the situation? 
I mean, they're armed. They're in control. There's a whole bunch of them. They greatly outnumber Jesus and his friends. You know why I think it is? I think it was because of Jesus' decisiveness and courage in this moment. As soon as Peter wielded that sword to cut the guy's ear off, I think like a wise coach, Jesus probably just grabbed him from behind and held him back. I said, put that away, Peter. You know you live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword, dude. Put that away. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, get the irony of that. I I find this humorous, actually. 12 legions, that's 72,000 angels who at the same time drew their swords. Jesus is like, go Pete, take a look. 72,000. You? I frankly don't need your help right now with this. But Luke's gospel records that Jesus did an amazing thing. He goes over to the soldier who's holding his ear in pain, trying to stop the bleeding. And Luke 22 says, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. (laughs) What a great physician. What a loving leader. One of his enemies who'd come to do him in, Jesus does an act of kindness and ministry to the man. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. No bitterness, no protest, no retaliation. In fact, he says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, of my own free will. Now, there are two lessons that I want us to take away today. That's why I mentioned those early. I didn't want you to be waiting all sermon for them with bated breath because they're going to come right at the end and they're going to be quick. I urge you to jot these down and think about them this week. Effective emergency prayer is best preceded by regular daily prayer. In other words, Jesus didn't wait till he was directly under the shadow of the cross to start praying. Check it out in the Gospels. Jesus repeatedly prayed. Over and over again, you get phrases like this. He went out to lonely places and prayed. He went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. He spent a whole night up on a mountain and prayed over and over. As he was praying is a common phrase you see. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane was so powerful because he had cultivated the art of praying every day. And friend, I would... Oh, I would urge you to do the same. One of our goals at Grace Fellowship is to build the kind of disciples, by God's grace, that are powerful in prayer. Men and women who know the Father's heart. Men and women who passionately seek him every single day in prayer and see great kingdom impact in the process. Is that you? If not, are you taking steps to grow in that direction? Jesus is our model. Corey ten Boom asks, is prayer your spare tire or your steering wheel? I like that. Is prayer your spare tire or your steering wheel? Big 
difference. For Jesus, it was the steering wheel of his life. But the second lesson we can learn here is that prayer strengthens us for difficulty even more than it changes circumstances. Now, please hear me loud and clear. Prayer can change circumstances by God's grace. We see it happen. God heals the disease. God reconciles the relationship. God turns the financial picture around. God takes hopelessness and casts it out and brings a spirit of joy and hope and actual excitement for the future. Miracles happen. God changes things through prayer. But not always. It's certainly a common experience that we pray and God actually chooses not to exempt us from the difficulty we're praying about, but to strengthen us to endure it. The great C.S. Lewis wrote, in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. After that, the idea of prayers recommended to us as a source of infallible gimmick may be dismissed. You have every right. You have the invitation to God to come to him and pray with him about that thing that is gripping your heart, that problem, that challenge you're facing. Please come to him with that. But it may not be God's will it may not be the greatest way for your good and his glory at this time for that to be removed right now. An unknown Confederate soldier wrote, I prayed for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but yet everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most, most richly blessed. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Jesus came out of Gethsemane in victory. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But I believe it was in the prayer of Gethsemane that the Father strengthened him for what was ahead. I don't know what you face this day. I don't know what you face this week or this month, or this year. But I know this. I know this. The dynamic Christian life can only be lived through persistent and effective prayer to God. Let's make a renewed commitment to that and allow God to teach us through the Gethsemane school of prayer. Father, thank you for your amazing love to us. Thank you that you teach us what it means to live for you. 
Thank you for the example of Jesus in Gethsemane. We look to him as our model. And Father, may we be the kinds of disciples who know what it is to touch the Father's heart, to know the Father's will through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.